Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Eric. You can find him on Twitter at Eric Electrons. And uh, Eric is a physics student. And also I've seen him on Benjamin Boyce's podcast talking about race and identity and the whole current culture around it. So I wanted to have him on talk a couple of things about that because this is something that's been bugging me for a bit. Anyways, Eric, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so like as I mentioned, I saw you speaking with Benjamin Boyce, um, but if you want to give people a little bit of your background and like you're pretty vocal on Twitter and I, like I said, I've seen you a couple other places, if you want to let people know like why you got started into this and you know, like where you're coming from on that. Yeah, so I'm a third year physics student at Georgia State University, um, you know, did a little bit of uh, black coal research and um, I'm a double major, actually, physics and mathematics, but um, I'm more likely going to drop the mathematics so I could finish sooner. Uh, but uh, yeah, I became vocal on Twitter about maybe five years ago or so, you know, just uh, seeing the different social justice stuff and, and uh, the things happening inside academia that really inspired me to speak up more. And um, that's how I landed uh a chance to go on Benjamin Boyce's uh, podcast and um, talk about the issues there. And I'm really passionate about obviously truth and um, getting closest to the approximation of truth, which is what science is all about. And, um, you know, giving people an insider's look of how scientists think and uh, what can we improve in our society in terms of scientific literacy. Like that's kind of similar to where I'm from in the sense that uh, I only started looking at this stuff around 2014 because I was away for a while and I, you know, and I came back. It's what hit me the most was Islam. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm from Muslim background and, you know, seeing people being called white supremacists, people like INRC Ali and Majid Noah is being called white supremacists for speaking out against Islam. I'm like, there was something wrong there. It did, you know, it just didn't make sense. And so I'm like, okay, well, why is this happening? And I just started looking for why, like, was the conversation around Islam so screwed up? And then the more you start looking, like, I mean, the the whole racial conversation, and then that started getting more and more once Trump got elected. But, like, I, like, so I started looking into this, like, I came back in about 2014, so I saw the two-year buildup up to Trump, and then now I've seen, like, the four years, you know, following Trump, and it's just things are getting worse and worse. And so when you said, okay, you want to find an objective truth, you're coming from science. Like that's, you know, that's a whole issue with free speech. That's the scientific method. It's, I say H2O, you know, two, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen makes water. You say, no, it makes whiskey. And you know, whatever, like, obviously it's something very stupid, but we're, you know, you, you try it out. Like, can you make whiskey with two parts hydrogen and one part water? Uh, sorry, two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Can you make whiskey? And you can try and try and try and try and try. No, it doesn't happen. You can pretty say, okay, it doesn't. Like, that's a scientific method. Like, and I bring this up because right now with COVID, it's follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. And at the same time, you're getting the New England Journal of Medicine telling you that racism is a worse virus than COVID. Now, wait, a, I don't think you should say follow the science. I think like you and Melissa Chen were talking about this the other day, like on Twitter. It's like, I think it's 
follow the evidence that the methodology of science gives you. I think that would be a better way to put it. But if you want to talk about that, like talk about objective truth coming through science and like, you know, go, go about that. Like, where are we at with that right now? Yeah, when it comes to this COVID situation, that really, to me, should have been uh, kind of a red flag in terms of the scientific community. But uh, I'm getting the sentiment now that a lot of scientists and science communicators, they don't understand that the way they're communicating things are actually hurting their efforts, no matter if their conclusions are right or not. And um, yeah, on, on getting closest to the truth. I mean, I'm all about, I I think science is about getting closest to the most accurate approximation because science isn't about proving uh, things. Uh, It's getting as close as you can to that accurate, um, to the truth that you can, you know what I mean? And like you said, it's through testing, it's through experimentation and, and you do that and you can do that on a very basic level. And then of course there are certain ways where it goes further than that, than just, you know, observing, looking at an experiment, doing the experiment, um, tweaking certain things, trying things over and over, and then coming to a conclusion. You know, there's a lot more to it, but that's the gist of it. And that's how we could apply it um, in different ways. I think where it goes wrong is when you, you see scientists, for instance, saying everyone should stay home. Everyone should, should not be outside at all. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to BLM protests, Black Lives Matter, for those who don't know what BLM is, um, all of a sudden, it's okay to be outside. And this is the most important thing in our lives. And, and we should have strikes for science and, and all this other stuff. Like That's showing a clear political bias. Now, when it comes to science, every scientist has bias. And then bias can creep into research. However, when it comes to applying the scientific method correctly, um, bias is not relevant anymore because what matters is that experiment. Just like how you said, you know, when when you experiment to see if um, certain molecules can make uh, uh, whiskey or water, you you do that experiment and you can do that over and over and you'll get a certain result in the same way. Um, I think scientists and science communicators need to do that when it comes to communicating science to the public. If you're going to be for everyone staying home and staying on lockdown and everything, no matter if I disagree with you or not, or people disagree with you or not, like you need to be consistent at that. But the problem is is when politics gets in the way, they, they poison the well a bit when it comes to, getting towards to the most accurate approximation of what the truth is. And that's been a big problem for years, at least five to six years as, as I've seen in the science community. Okay. I mean, I just want to stick with this, like the, you know, like, like we want to get an approximation of truth. Like, you know, uh, gravity is 9.8 meters per second per second at sea level right so like that that's an approximation of objective reality that we all agree on yes it's going to be slightly faster if you're on top of everest and it's going to be like like, i I don't know i I forgot i'm going to get this all wrong it's going to be slightly lower or something like that when you get or sorry i I mean i I get it all wrong like there's going to be more pressure the closer you get to the the center of the earth and so it's going to be the stronger pull right so the further away you get it's going to be lighter it's an objective reality that we've agreed on when i see again when i see the new england journal of medicine telling me that it's 
a worse virus than you know, racism's worse virus than COVID. And you know, you know, again, I'm diabetic. I have one kidney. I've got a low immune system. I mask up. I do whatever I can to take care of myself because I think that's the best thing for myself to do. You know, like that. That's that's on me. Like I'm not going to push this on anyone. But you know, I'm looking at like infection rates. I'm looking at how susceptible I am. I'm looking at okay, I've got a low immune system. I've got looking at all these things and whatever I can do. Even if it's someone's going to say, okay, a mask is stupid. You're just not doing anything for you, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, that's on me now, right? But if they had said, because they'd gone up to that point saying, okay, wear a mask, do this, stay inside. Now, if they want to prove you going out, they could say, okay, as an adult, if you're going out or if you have young children, you are responsible for them. Here are the threats. We suggest you wear a mask, try to socially distance and bring hand sanitizer with you but we understand why you're protesting. Maybe you might've had less people protest and that might've led to less rioting. I don't know. But at that point, you're treating people like adults and they are like, like to me, it's the damage that that's like something like that is doing to the scientific community. That's the damage that's doing to expertise, the damage that's doing to like, it's, it's the, like the Academy, some scientific institutions, journalism, they're basically shooting themselves in the foot and they're shooting expertise in the foot. And that's my big worry with this. It's not like this one specific message, which is bad enough on its own, but it's like, if we lose trust in science, where do we go from there? Exactly. Exactly. And I, I'm really trying to figure a way to, to get it to scientists. Cause the problem with scientists, they think people are either naive or stupid um, and willfully at that. And, and they don't trust adults to do, adult things like they think that they they have this weird confidence in government telling people what to do and that never really goes over too well and and i think a lot of that is due to them not um properly understanding certain things in history or, or not studying you know political science or maybe economics it's it's due to a lot of things but sciences generally have a very just a pessimistic type of view of, of most people. And once I think once they get out of that sort of mindset and, and they trust people more to do what's best for you know themselves, their family, um, we could get to the closest approximation of the truth uh, with just saying the science. And, and sometimes just saying the science is enough, you know, uh, I, I think too many times during this whole COVID debate, what we've seen is scientists and authorities, they, they, say, say, they say one thing scientifically and then they mix their politics in, in that, you know, and they mesh it together in a way where it's like, well, this is the science. And it's like, no, this is your opinion on top of the science. And we need to be able to separate that. And I, I don't have a lot of trust and faith in scientists doing that anytime soon. Yeah, well, again, that that's scary. Um, I want to go back to something you'd mentioned, the, the, the science strike. Mm. Now, this to me, like, this is the whole part of the, like, you know, where you get racism is worse than COVID and all that. Okay, we need a science strike because science, because of lack of equity in science. Now, I don't know the statistics. I haven't looked at them, you know, what percentage of, uh, you know, science degrees are black brown white like i I don't know 
like that's where it's, I mean that I think the two are connected when you have a conversation like that and that's what's taking over science and that's what's taking over science journalism so obviously stories like that are going to come out so that attitude that you need a perfect balance in STEM departments to show what's going out in the population. So if the population is 13% black, then there should be 13% black, you know, in that school in the STEM fields. And now if this is coming from scientists and science departments, like don't they understand, like I took statistics 25 years ago and I kind of understand distribution and like, you're like, (laughs) shouldn't scientists? (laughs) <laughs> you would think so, but the, the thing is, I think when when people learn something to the highest degree and their political bias mm-hmm. gets in the way, they know how to manipulate it either consciously or unconsciously in a way that will fit their narrative or their ideas, mm-hmm. you know. And that's done often. I mean, it, it was done during this whole two plus two equals oh, five God. thing on Twitter. I mean, that, that's another subject. But kind of going back to what you said on racism being like the worst disease, like that that to me is like, first of all, no, it's not. Second of all, um, you know, racism today is really not much of a obstacle as it used to be. And What's crazy is even those during the times where it was an obstacle, I'm talking about the times of Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. uh, Booker T. Washington in the early 1900s or late 1800s, early 1900s, they even had a more conservative mindset of, you know, I think we should take personal accountability and do what we can to our best abilities and not, you know, put all of our mind towards, oh, how oppressed we are and stuff like that. Um, and what I've seen from the strike for science thing is this sort of racist assumption that, you know, in order for black people to get into science, in order for black people to um, achieve the same or similar success as their white and Asian counterparts, that they must, um, that there needs to be like these safe spaces for them. And, and, and people need to be deprogrammed to not be racist because, you know, for some reason they think that the the population or the low population of black people in stem fields are due to racism mainly and that's just simply not true i mean one thing i could point to for instance is um the, the fact that black women are the largest growing number of uh college graduates um out of any group a lot of people don't know that, but black women are like per capita, they have the largest group of people graduating college. Um, I, I could, so I can't source that off the top of my head, but I'm sure if, you know, anyone yeah. looks that up that they could find it pretty easily. And, um, you know, the majors that they're picking matters, you know, because like, why would this college system that's allowing all these black women to, to succeed not allow them to get into STEM fields. That doesn't even make any sense. It's they're choosing certain fields that, you know, fit their personal lifestyle or their their needs in some way, shape, or form. And they're not choosing STEM fields. Now, if if the conversation was more so like, how do we get more people into STEM that aren't really interested in STEM right now, I'll be for that. But this weird conversation of we need a certain amount of black people in STEM. We need a certain amount of Hispanic people in STEM or, or just unrepresented people in STEM in general 
is bananas to me. It's, it's sort of like looking at your favorite sport and seeing uh, a certain amount of, I don't know, um, whatever in there. Like, let's say the NBA has mostly black people in there. It's like if I were to look at the NBA and say, we need to make programs so that more Asians could get into the NBA, you know, because they're the population of Asian players in the NBA doesn't represent, um, you know, the population of the United States or of Europe or wherever yeah. this is. So it just doesn't make sense. And I have the controversial opinion of, of I oftentimes ask, like, why does there need to be more Black people in anything? Like, I'm for more people who want to be in things, but I don't, I'm not for having black people in something just for representation I, I'm, I'm naturally in a free society there's going to be disparities and there are going to be um, a lack of insert identity here yeah. you know in, in various places but i just don't see i never saw the need of there should be black people in a specific space just because okay sticking with this for a bit now the whole thing came out with Harvard and Asian students and they're like, okay, they, you know, they deduct so many points in SATs. They give so many points to black students. Now I'd spoken to a couple of, you know, college professors and stuff. And so if a black student gets, I don't know what it is. Like I, I think it's a hundred. It could be wrong, but they get a hundred point bump. Right? Now you got a kid who's gone through high school, you know, middle school and high school and you, you see a market improvement and, but he's just not quite, ready for Harvard Medical School. But you bump them up 100 points, you get them in there, or get her in there. And they don't do that well. They get discouraged, and then they switch programs. Invariably, they end up going into some arts program, and some of them are going to end up into, like, uh, intersectionality course in sociology or something like that. And it's like, oh, well, of course I didn't succeed. It's because the system was designed to make me not succeed. If like my, my whole thing with that was if you see that person with that promise, why set them up to fail? Because you are setting them up to fail. Why not do like a, um, a prep here saying, you know what? You're really good. We'll hold a place for you. Go to a community college, take these courses, get a B average, and you got a place waiting for you for the following year. You know, something along those lines. Like obviously I don't make policy. I don't, you know, I'm probably missing a lot of things but something along those lines to me would seem of more service and of more use and it doesn't have to be a black student like to any student who shows promise that you think might do well why not give them the tools to actually succeed because i mean you're taking physics i i did sciences for a while and i mean i did fairly well i just got pissed off at my teachers um <laughs> uh but yeah, that's a whole other thing. Well, that's just a whole other thing. Like I, I went into art. Like I wanted to poli sci afterwards. But you know, learning physics is hard. Like I, I did the basics. I did you know just like motion and optics and a, a bit of you know elementary. Well, not even like you know like like protons and electrons, like bit of particle stuff, but not much. Uh, basically, just around light. So there's a lot of stuff there. And if you aren't prepared, and if you haven't done that, like you know, you're not going to be able to understand quantum physics if you don't get motion if you don't understand how light works so i don't understand that that thinking of well just get them in because we want the representation like aren't you damaging your university aren't you damaging your program and aren't you hurting those students yeah and you're talking about best case scenario that they 
switch into programs. Worst case scenario is they drop out completely, which is what happens to a lot of people. They, they drop out of these Ivy League universities and then they um, take on like jobs where, or they, they take on jobs where they're making less or they're doing things that leads them to, uh, you know, a bad road ahead of them. And then the cycle repeats itself. And then of course they could blame racism or not having the resources and, and whatnot. But like, let's say for instance, me, like I went to two community colleges before I got to Georgia State University. So I, I went to a community college and it was mostly because like I was self-aware enough to know that I wasn't ready for Georgia Tech or Harvard or the, these other places. Like I just wasn't. Um, I, I took a break after high school um, to work. And then I, I came much later to, to college and I worked my way up. I barely, like my high school experience wasn't too good, um, by the way, like I barely passed high school. And um, I, and, and through that, like that made me dislike schooling at all. Like I've always been a self learner anyway, but um, I just disliked school after my high school experience. And my high school is one of the worst in Northern California. So uh, through that, for me, if, if I, I look at that and I'm saying like, if I did have good grades, even if I did in, in the, one of the worst high schools in Northern California, if I would have went to a UC Berkeley or something like that, I would have most likely flunked out or went to a, you know, a lesser major where, you know, it's not as challenging in the areas that would challenge me. And um, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. So I think you're you're 100% on when you say like they're setting them up for failure by making these programs to where they're streamlined straight into these Ivy League schools where they're the little fish in the big pond. And now, although they have all these resources and all these uh, diversity offices and all this other stuff, they're just not ready. And it doesn't mean that they're dumb or that they're not ready because of their race. It, it just simply means that due to multiple factors, be it their school, like where they were, because not all schools, you know, are equal, you know, but due to their schools, due to just where they're at uh, academically, they're not ready for that high tier type of um, environment where they'll drown. So, you know, naturally that they'll either flunk out or, or move into another program. And, and that's what often happens. Again, sticking with this, it's just because I, I'm seeing a lot of it, and I saw I was seeing a lot of it this past year. And there was a there was a meeting in Toronto, or whatever it was a you know a conference like this it was an online conference, and it was by one of them was a journalist at a major newspaper in Canada, and then the, it, was, it was two South Asians and one Middle Eastern person, and they were talking about brown complicity in white supremacy you can't deny that south asians do well in science and math and like you know like you got a lot of like you know indian and pakistani doctors and what their whole premise was that white people will hire brown people to say they're not racist brown people are then taking jobs from black people so we shouldn't take those jobs and give them to black people and so to fight the white supremacist system of white people only hiring brown people because they want to show they're not racist now. I mean, that's demeaning to me. Like, what I only got my job because of this. It's demeaning to black people. But there's another part of this that says, 
you know, objectivity is is a white trait. The love of the written word is a white trait. Science is a white way of knowing. This is coming from people who call themselves anti-racist. This is where it really gets me. Like, how the hell can you say you're anti-racist? You know, you said you're doing physics and math. That's Arabic numerals that came from India, for Christ's sakes. And these people are saying you're doing a white way of knowing. My whole thing with the affirmative action and all that, I you know, is like, and things like this is if there's an actual racist person at your school, which I'm sure there are, I'm not saying, you know, there's, he only got in because he's black. He doesn't deserve to be there. And it, like to me, that reinforces all of that. And that's, and they're saying basically the same thing. And it's just like, that's what gets me. It's, it's like this part of the anti-racism stuff. It's like, you're turning everything on its head and you're, you're pushing the cause of white supremacists. I'm sure the KKK loves talk like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you see the, the, um, the fact that they're starting from a conclusion and then they're working their way backwards, which mm-hmm. is the opposite of the scientific method. You know, you're so, I mean, of course you're supposed to form a hypothesis, but you're not supposed to have a conclusion ready and then mm-hmm. find evidence to support that. And when, when they do the whole thing of, oh, uh, brown people are hired for this position just to, you know, meet diversity quota type thing. And then all this other stuff, they're starting from the conclusion that the system is racist so how can we justify the fact that there are a, a lot of um, Southeast Asians or, or something like that in, in specific fields or anyone, you know, some fields have a lot of Hispanics in, in there. Some fields have, uh, you know, other people who are non-white. So I, I just, what I want people to realize is that they're starting from the conclusion of, you know, the system is rigged, it's it's systemically racist, and they work their way backwards to to pick apart um, excuses um, that aren't really uh, evidence-based. They're they're more like they, they will see an outcome they dislike and attribute that to their conclusion of you know racism and and that's a horrible way of doing science and that's the reason why a lot of people kind of side eye a lot of things that come out from the sociology department it's not to say sociology isn't legitimate it's very legitimate i think um and i think that it it could do a lot of good but what's i I think they have a very bad replication problem and then they also have um, their peer review system is is really messed up, and I think the SoCal SoCal Square uh, incident um, really exposed that, and and they didn't like that at all. So that's the reason why they're calling everyone a white supremacist who disagree with them, even if they're black or not white. Yeah, okay, like the white supremacist thing, or the oh, it's a right wing talking point. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's another thing I've noticed. Um, so, like, I was in war zones up from about 2002 to 2014. Um, but, you know, I'd see it before and I'd see a little bit after, like, if someone spoke out about Islam, oh, you're right wing. It's a right wing talking point. Uh, during George, you know, like during George W. years, patriotism became racist. It became a right wing thing, like Joe Rogan's right wing because he's got an American flag behind him. You know, like that kind of crap. And this is just what I think it was about two or three weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal put out an article about how the only good criticism or the only criticism coming of critical race theory is from the right. It's like, well, no, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay just wrote that book. And I mean, look at Eric or Brett Weinstein and, you know, 
I learned about this from people from the left. I didn't learn about it from people from the right. Now I see the same kind of thing happening. Like anyone who said anything about Islam, oh, it's you're either right wing or you're using right wing talking points. Mm-hmm. Now, and especially since Trump did his little executive order, everyone's like, oh no, no, it's right wing, right wing, right wing, right wing. And then I see the same thing with um, like ex Muslims that spoke out the the insults, especially the women that they, the insults that they got. Uh, like Majid Nawaz was called uh, a house Muslim. You know, he was called Uncle Tom. He was called a porch monkey, uh, native informant. Uh, you know, female friends of mine who are ex-Muslims, like you're just doing this for white dick uh, and shit like that. Now I see the same thing with black people who are speaking out against critical race theory or some of the excesses on the left. Now, Candace Owens, I'm not a big fan of hers. I think she's quite you know, harmful to the conversation, but you know, I don't want to see her getting rape threats. I, I, it, it's disgusting. Like, you know, you don't need that. Like, I, I see so many similarities. Like, I don't know if you notice the stuff around Islam, but are you seeing like, like, you know, as soon as you speak out, are you all automatically labeled right wing? Like, you're like, how does that work with you? Well, I'm. I was very close to the atheist movement. I was a. Um, I, I grew up Christian, um, but then I became more of like a deist, like later in high school and. Um, I followed the atheist movement ever since like uh, 2009 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, although now I consider myself agnostic, um, I I saw a lot of that rhetoric and, and you know, um, trying to combat a lot of the things that, you know, the atheist movement was saying. And it was more so towards um, Sam Harris at the time because Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins, they would speak out a lot about um, a lot against Islamic um, extremism and, and um, things found in the Quran, for instance, or things of that nature. And then I found their arguments to be interesting, but I also saw the social justice ties of when people would call them racist and, and all this other stuff. And I, at the time I was just like, I don't get, you know, this, this thing, like, like, why can't we agree based on something without considering someone you know, other or a traitor or something or, or evil. That that's the main thing. Like, what's worse than um, being wrong is you being evil, and and that's the easy way of getting out of answering arguments, and and things of that nature. But that was the first time me seeing it. And then um, it's funny. I, I just tweeted about this. It was like during the whole atheist movement, there was this thing called Elevator Gate, and um, that was around the time feminism started corrupting the atheist movement and, and, and co-opting like a- it. Atheism plus. Yeah. Atheism mm-hmm. plus and then all that stuff. Yeah. They, they really co-opted it and, and well hijacked it, I would say. And um, it became a, a thing of, Oh, if you don't agree with us, then you're sexist and racist and there's no, retribution for you at all. And and I just wasn't for that at all. And I was really surprised at how many people claimed to value critical thinking and, and all the other stuff just gladly accepted that, you know, but but at the same time, they would get mad that people call them uh, racist for criticizing Islam. So that whole thing threw me for a loop and it led me down this rabbit hole of, of just looking at all these arguments and, and history about this, about people 
agreeing and, and disagreeing on very basic things, but yet being called Uncle Tom or whatever that they call people. And, and I mean, I think calling someone Uncle Tom is the most ridiculous thing for obvious reasons, because, you know, if you read the book, Uncle Tom was a hero. But um, yeah, and, and one thing I do like about Candace Owens is she exposes that part. Like she she's really good at understanding a lot of the arguments that people um, do against her and, and, the, and the reason why people insult her because she comes from that. Um, where I disagree with her is her tactics of kind of taking everything that she used to do on the left and doing it on the right, mm. you know, um, the, the identity politics stuff. And, and I don't necessarily agree with that part, but at the same time, um, she, I, I think we could learn from everyone. And then I think everyone has a point somewhere along the line, you know, so yeah, it's, it's a very strange thing when people assume a person to be racist or a traitor to their own race simply for disagreeing. Like the, to know the intent of a person just because you disagree with them or to, to think you know the intent of a person just because you disagree with them without any further evidence other than they disagree with you is just stupid to me. When I was 14, I was taking the bus in Montreal and on the seat back in front of me, someone wrote white power, black caca. The only word they spelt correctly was caca. I laughed my head off. And since that point, like, oh, you know, racism like that, someone calling me a packy or whatever, didn't really bother me. I'm like, okay. I kept thinking back to that. I'm like, you, can, you can't spell basic words. Like, that, that's you now. But over the last 20, 25 years, I've been facing racism, you know, and it's uh, you people call it soft big, bigotry of low expectations. No, it's hard bigotry. It's low expectations. Yeah, there's nothing soft about it. I'm sorry, you know, like I'm being treated as lesser. Like I need a leg up because of the color of my skin. Because otherwise, I can't do it on my own. Likewise, you know, and it's you know, and especially like since coming back in 2014, it's it's worse and worse. Like you know, calling Majid Nawaz a house Muslim and saying you're a racist house Muslim. It's like, first of all, look at where the term house Muslim comes from. Like, go back, you know, like, where did that term, what did that term originally say? And what was it talking about? And now you're applying it to a guy who wants to reform his faith and you're calling him a house Muslim. Like, just, and you're saying he's racist. Like, that whole thing, like, but, you know, what's her face just just the other day now? Chelsea Handler. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Like, Oh, I, I, I had to remind 50 Cent that he was black. Excuse me? I think he knows. I think he sees it when he looks in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the mindset, believe it or not, of a lot of these people in academia. Like, they think, oh, the black people or non-white people who disagree with me on social justice issues, they disagree with me because they just forgot who they are, one, or two, they um, uh, just are so gullible that they got caught up in right-wing talking points that that's the only thing like you know there, it couldn't be because they could possibly be wrong about everything that they know about social justice and, and all this other stuff um but those are the only two things and then maybe a couple other things but the fact that they assume that it's due to your character and not due to what you may or may not know that to me, like you said, it's, it's hard bigotry. It's not, there's nothing soft about it. Um, it's clearly racist. It's clearly, um, and I, like you, I've faced more racism, I would say, 
from those type of people than I have from right-wing people any day. And I, I talked to a good amount of both. And I, I've even talked to people actually on the far right. And I've still, to this day, I've never got as much um, racism as I've have I got from people from what some would say the far left, but I would just say, you know, a lot of left-leaning people in general, or they, they consider themselves left-leaning, but they're probably more so far left. Yeah, the you know, left-right thing, I it doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, is there much yeah. difference between Antifa and the Bugaloo boys? Like, really? You know, no, I mean, Antifa's got more money for bail and Bugaloo boys a better Kevlar. Like, it's... The, <laughs> You know, it's about it. Like yeah, when Eamon, when Eamon sure. Bundy, you know, teams up with BLM because BLM is anti-police, like you might want to look at like, you know, the horseshoe is no longer a horseshoe. It's a circle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. And I, it's, it's weird that they can't see that. I mean, it's weird that they can't even see the ties to, um, you know, regular critical race theory, which has ties to, to Marxism and then things of that nature uh, in their ideology or the fact that the BLM people, they or the BLM founders, like you know, the, one of them saying that they're trained Marxists and they value that, and they've you know taken pictures with and and outwardly said things such as, oh, we think white people are less than human and all this other crazy stuff. You know, uh, I I don't understand how people can't look at that and and see that there's a deeper issue there. Okay, the I brought up the BLM and the anti stuff. Now yeah. there was that report. You know, because I was talking about someone about this yesterday. We're talking about extremism. That report that just came out of Minnesota. Um, you know, it was Bugaloo boys. It burnt down that first police precinct uh, in Minneapolis. And like, you know, the, after people were like, "Aha! It's right wing! It's right wing! It's right wing!" Okay, but and I'm not disputing that. Like, I'm not arguing like these people. But then they, you know, a bunch of videos come out, and it's these these guys. They're like, oh, well, we heard, you know, like uh, some po- protesters were being pushed back by the police, and these people were out protesting George Floyd. We're gonna go, you know, go help out the protesters against the police. And these are these guys. So there's that crossover. Like, you've got this. So you've got Antifa and BLM, and you've got the Bugaloo Boys and the Proud Boys and whatever all the other idiots are on that side. But they're coming out of your education system. So if you've like if you've had an education system that is one telling you that the United States is the worst place in the world. I know 1619 hasn't got into the history curriculum, but there is that post-colonial thing that I've been looking at it. Um, you know, critical race theory and intersectionality has been in in high school since roughly about 2010. Mm-hmm. Like in the curriculum and stuff like that. And you're surprised that you're getting more extremism and you're surprised you're scratching your head going well, why is there more white supremacy? Well, in a country that's 65% white, when you get kids to focus on race and racial identity, you know, you might get white supremacy rising. <laughs> maybe, exactly. just maybe. <laughs> just maybe, yeah. I mean, there might be a slight possibility. That, yeah, I mean, again, and, and the people in academia who are so oblivious to this, it really blows my mind because I'm just like, don't you understand that there is a, actual slippery slope here like you know these ideologies lead to this it's not like these ideologies accidentally make this and these are like some unforeseen consequences no these are foreseen consequences we we know this we we could look back in the early 2000s we could look back after the 80s when some of this was implemented in, in law for instance um 
it has bad consequences. We've seen this over and over and over. And when it comes to the um, the whole, just the social justice thing in general, I mean, that's been uh, here since since Godwin or something. What is that like two hundred fifty years? And in political theory, you know. So I mean, again, I just think they look at it from the surface uh, and what it aims to do, and and a lot of very smart people they they judge it based off that instead of seeing what it does in practice um and judging it based off that and and i think once people start seeing it more in practice and honestly when when people are calling everything racist everything sexist everything homophobic or transphobic i think that's radicalizing a lot of people or turning people away at least um against their ideals and I, and that's the reason why i speak out so much or i expose it it's it's a very good um remedy for for a lot of this madness that we're seeing yeah i mean the, okay i keep bringing up this uh study and he uh he published some of the some of it uh right after uh like the killing of george floyd and the protests and the riots started but then later earlier like i think uh maybe about a month or so ago or maybe two months it came out in Tablet Mag, and it was a study of newspapers using race, racist, uh, systemic oppression, like those kind of terms, and the frequency of from 2000 to 2008. It was kind of steady, but there was a slow rise. From 2008 to 2012, it doubled, and then from 2012 to 2016, it tripled, and it just kept going up and up and up. And you kept getting articles about how jogging is racist because it started in Portland. Um, it, the, the one that I think was the worst, and I keep bringing it up because it was just so goddamn bad. There was four black girls, high school girls in Brook. Uh, they were not so four high school uh, girls that were black, two South Asian males, um, and they're from a, on a high school trip from New Jersey into Brooklyn. The two boys beat up the girls, and I think one of them pissed on the girls. The op-ed piece in the New York Times, like you know, the, the the leading piece on their op-ed page was, it was due to whiteness. Now, the, okay, that shouldn't turn someone over the edge, but if you consistently get shit like that, that you know, you're told you're racist, you're told you've got privilege. Um, I keep bringing up the thing with the coal miners. You know, during Obama years, coal miners running out of you know, losing their jobs, being told they got privilege, and at the same time being told to learn to code. You know, again. You're going to piss some people off. Some guy starting high school, some guy starting college, he takes a diversity course and he's told his privilege and he's seen his town, you know, his, his parents lose their livelihood or whatever. You don't think there's going to be some reaction? Like, I I don't get that. Like, I, I don't get that whole thing of people scratching their heads going, why is white supremacy on the rise? Yeah, I, I again, I think it's people having their own little bubbles and they're not, going out to get the perspectives that they need from all sides of this issue that they're just staying in their bubbles where everyone's calling other people things and then you know assuming that to be true i mean i have a lot of academic friends and they come to me in my messages and often they say hey like i agree with you i've been peeping this for a while but i can't say anything due to my position or i can't say anything because i'm in the middle of doing this research with a lot of these people who do, uh, disagree with you on certain things but I just want you to know I do support you and I'm here like I get those messages at least once a week um, and you know 
I think when that type of environment is around, it doesn't encourage people to, again, stick to their scientific training and, and get closest to the objective possible truth that there is, like the most objective possible truth there is. Instead, it just makes people comfortable enough to sit back and blame whiteness due to what has happened in the past and then to act like things haven't changed at all. And that's another ridiculous thing that I hear often that things haven't changed. I mean, I've been told by white people and in STEM and, and all these other people that nothing has changed from the past and it's still the same amount of racism. And some people even argue with me even more today than um, there was in the past. And I'm like, come on now, like that's ridiculous, you know? Uh, I think once people, once we curate environments to where, you know, free speech is actually valued uh, and, and, and being for censorship is more taboo, I think we're just going to keep seeing this. And, and that's the reason why lately, especially, I've been more put off by academia and more than likely I'm, I'm probably not going to go to grad school because I don't see this environment as being one I want to be in. I've spoken with, uh, you know, Bo Weingard and Colin Wright. Both of them left academia. Okay, I have no way of judging this. I, you know, Colin is a biologist, but from you know everything, it seems like he was respected until he stepped out of out of line and on the transition. Bo is evolutionary psychology. Brought up the IQ issue, and that was it. Third rail. He's gone. I mean, I've heard you speak. We're talking right now. You seem like a fairly intelligent person. Now, isn't that a loss to physics and whatever grad school you go to? Maybe to yourself, like you might end up doing something. You might end up doing something that you really uh, you know, love or whatever, but you might not. You might end up doing something that you don't like because you got out of this. Like I, like I, I'm not trying to scare you or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, yeah. like that's a potential loss. And I see them driving away. It's like they want to drive away talent. Like. Uh, Jordan McCorder was doing that about a month or so ago. He was taking, he just asked people to write in if they weren't, if they were scared to talk out. You know, I think he said in the first weekend, he got 140 some odd messages from academics. How long before those professors leave? And then you have less good people in schools. You know, okay, I, I don't have kids. I'm doing this purely selfish. I want to make sure that the doctors that look after me, while I'm an old fart, know what the hell they're doing. You know, I want to make sure the people who are writing the policies are not going to leave me out in the cold when I'm you know, retired. Like I, I, I want to make sure all that's taken care of. So I, I want this stuff. I want this system to work. And we should all want this system to work. When I hear you say you might not go into grad school, and I, I don't want to sway you or whatever. People make their own decisions. But like it's to me, it's like, okay, we're losing something. Doesn't the academy see that? Or are, do they consider you an undesirable that they would rather see go anyway? I think it's more so the latter than the former. I mean, uh, unfortunately, they see you as other if you don't agree with them ideologically a, a lot of times. And this isn't, it's not very apparent at first. Like it, it's like first, well, I, I'm going to say it's probably different when it comes to different people of different races. But what I noticed with me is they're very open and welcoming to me obviously because they have in their mind that I'm so oppressed and that I need like all this extra help and stuff. And then I, I, I see that. And then once they learn about my actual stance on certain things, then I see them slowly like shifting away in, in some way and they do it more so um, 
if it's not in person, like I've never had a bad interaction with someone who was like SJW at my school or something or yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever had a bad instance of that, but um, you know, through programs I work with or through different STEM opportunities I, I've gotten, I've seen it. And I mean, just recently there was a professor in I think North Carolina, he said some things that were disagreeable to many people, but he was pressured into retiring. Like, you know, they, they gave him a retirement benefit and all this other stuff. And they were talking about how they didn't want to see him. A very influential science communicator, um, she made this like email to everyone because like, this is, here's another thing that a lot of people don't know. Scientists, they have like these little email groups, social media groups, Slack groups, all this other uh-huh. stuff. And then they they talk within one another and then they that's how they network and to, or not only for like social justice stuff but um for research purposes too because it's a lot easier nowadays to collaborate with people and, and to you know offer jobs and stuff because you know if your program is looking for someone you just throw out a little thing in your message group and more than likely someone's going to read it and someone could be helped by that so there's a lot of benefit to it but there's a lot of ideological things in there and i see a lot of you know anti right wing or anti anything right of moderate left and um and in these messages and um so basically going back to that story she sent all these emails out had people email the the university and then right after emailing the university um you know they basically one got them got him to retire blocked him from opportunities, slandered him on many articles and, and all this other stuff. And he ended up taking his own life. And no, I read about that. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like when things like that happen and I honestly, I, I don't think I would ever take my life over something mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, when, when that's a possibility and you know, they kind of just shrug their shoulders, like, well, he said something bad, you know, over the internet like I, I really don't care what he said over the internet. My my thing is when when it comes to people doing their jobs, what I care about is if you do your job good or not. You know, when when we go to a restaurant, we don't say what are the chef's political views. You know, I, I really want to know the political views of the chef before I sit down at this restaurant and have a nice meal. You know, or or hey, like the the person taking my order in the drive through, like what are their political? We don't say that because we don't care. We we know what we care about is whether they do their service good or not, um, whether they service us good or not. And for some reason, when it comes to academia, they have this warped view of thinking that just because someone has like disagreeable views over the internet, that translates to them being bad at their job as a professor, a teacher, a student, uh, that's researcher, that's a researcher or whatever, you know, and when people have such a horrible view like that, it it leads to people doing things that, you know, have so many unintended consequences, like taking their life and and their family being out and, and, you know, left with all these bad memories of whatever they had to go through while they were here. Um, It it leads to people dropping out of, college or, or dropping out of grad school and all this, because I know of people like that. I know of people who got their degree, they were just about to get into a research program. And then 
they made an article about something that someone didn't like and then due to being canceled they were thrown in this thing of depression due to all these like hateful messages they got and then they went into industry or just did nothing that their uh whatever their degree was about um permitted them to do so there's a lot of consequences to cancel culture that i don't think most people in academia sees and i don't think that they look at people like me as talent but just like you know um more so of a puppet of right-wing talking points and and that's it and that that's the unfortunate but i think most um honest interpretation that i could come up with now like i don't know if you're back in person classes or if it's all online but was there any like added oh you got to take a diversity course this semester because i mean you're starting back you know you had the whole summer of protests and riots and whatever was that added on to your or did you already have to take a diversity course while you're in school um i'm pretty sure i already took one like early yeah. on uh there was i mean of course they have the they have sexual assault one they have the yeah. drugs and alcohol tests that you have to take yeah. before you can uh pick classes and do all that but then they also have like a diversity one um you know and and you know these are like very basic things <laughs> like you know and and it's crazy to me um but luckily now i don't have to have any of those classes because I, i've already taken the right, optional classes yeah. and stuff but I, uh, the reason i was bringing it up is because you, know, you were talking about okay, that one professor then there was that i think it was ucla the guy was talking about the chinese word nega someone thought it sounded like something else and got offended because and i don't even know if the person who complained initially was black and they said well if a black person had heard this it might have sounded like this and they might have faced some harm now that idea of harm and same thing with that professor at uh unc i think like he was you know he would his what he said might cause you know this community x harm that idea of causing harm so i was just wondering if that was in your diversity training like it's a thing from uh, Herbert Marcuse called repressive tolerance. And I mean, it's the, you can read the paper. It's if you want, I'll send it to you, but it's basically it comes down to is not only do I have to give, you have to give people who are marginalized a voice. You have to censor anything that might cause them harm. So anything that they hear that, that it can offend them will cause them some form of harm. So you have to repress it. You have to repress that. So, firing that professor because he said something that's harmful to people that's why you have to fire him because you're repressing the harm that his words might cause that community so i just i don't know if you've come across that or if you've come across anything like that in the guidelines or if you hear that like something just specifically pushing harm towards words like i just want to i'm trying to figure out how extensive that is yeah i asked myself that same question because i was hearing often when i first gone back to college about um generational trauma and all this other stuff and i was just like so confused about it you know and then when i read more into it i was like well maybe i'm an exception to the rule maybe like i don't know like but i, I don't have any generational trauma i i don't feel traumatized and and here's the thing that my ultimate view like even if that professor did say the n-word or any other word that you know is very offensive 
I still don't see that as a reason to either try to cancel him or fire him or, or even cause an outrage about, you know, like I, I think what should be talked about more is how parents are um, teaching their children to be offended by very small things. And this, this uh, habit of being offended by very small things, it, it goes to them being adults and being hypersensitive of, of things. Um, I, I was having a conversation with a, a colleague the other day about representation because I'm not one that thinks that um, representation is a hugely important thing. I, I do know that it can help. I do know that, um, you know, there's data showing that it, it helps in many regards, but I don't think that it's necessary in order to, one, make the field better, and then two, um, for other people of a certain race or for the population of a certain race to change. You know, like there, there are many fields where previously there were no women in there. And then all of a sudden, like within 10 years, all these women started coming in there and then it was like half and half. And then now women are dominating. You know, I think, I think sociology or psychology is one of those fields. Like it's mostly women now, whereas it used to be mostly men. So, um, you know, while I was basically telling my colleague, I was like, why is it that parents are teaching children that they should be, that they should look for representation in things? Like, why, why aren't we asking that question? You know, it's just like if we were to ask the question of, um, or if we were to go into a room and say, you know, no one's wearing my shirt. So because of that, I have imposter syndrome. And because of that, I know that I can't do the things everyone else with different shirts have on in, in this room. People would look at that person and say, well, you failed as a parent because like, why would you put that in the child's head? But for some strange reason, it's cool to tell children that they should look for representation of race in order for them to achieve something. You know, if that were true, then, you know, Jackie Robinson would have never made it. Obama would have never made it. You know, um, many of these other people of, of different, um, that, that jumped into these fields where, where they weren't represented and yet they achieved better than most, they would have never made it. So I think the question needs to be shifted towards why are we, or why are there a lot of academics and parents prioritizing representation over um, having self-confidence? Like I, I've spoken with a couple of people about this. Um, one of them, Lenore Skenazi, she does a, a thing called Free Range Kids. And it's to help get kids more self-confidence. And they do stuff for uh, primary and middle schools. So it's little projects, right? You know, so if you're in kindergarten, first grade, kids will make toast in the morning for breakfast on the weekends, right? Just a little to give them more confidence. And, and as the age appropriate, they get better. But parents are also given, like, you know, in some places you let your nine or 10 year old walk across the street to the park. Someone will call Child's Protective Services on you. But, you know, I was a latchkey kid. I was coming home at seven by myself on the, you know, on the bus, like, okay. My parents were broke, couldn't afford daycare. Yes, maybe I shouldn't have been coming home at seven, but you know, whatever, I'm alive. There's got to be a happy medium there, but parents are also being fed a lot of this stuff. You see it in the media. You know, uh, the one, the, the representation thing that bugs me the most was the Apu thing in The Simpsons. Oh, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's a bad representation because he owns a store. You know, like, okay, Apu was one of the more responsible characters on that show. 
He was hardworking. He raised, he took care of his family. He worked. Yes, they made him out to be a buffoon, but everyone is a buffoon on that show. Yeah, everyone is okay. a buffoon. Yeah. When that happened, I was joking around. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, my family moved to Canada from India. Within six months, my dad opened up a, or you know bought a convenience store, started running a convenience store. I'm like, my dad was fucking up. Who? Where's my representation? <laughs> <laughs> just because he wasn't a doctor or a lawyer or whatever right he was a guy who ran a a convenience store but he said he took care of his family he was hard working he was responsible he was you know he was intelligent because he had the whole backstory he's got his phd and all that but you know yet they don't care about having that guy on the big bang theory who's got a really thick indian accent like okay why not have someone who like me, like I was born in India. I grew up here. I've got no accent. You know, why not have that story? Then like, I don't care. Like I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for a good story. You know, good characters. I could read Shakespeare. When I was in high school, we read Shakespeare. You know, you, a, a teenage boy can relate with Hamlet, you know, telling Ophelia the take thee to a nunnery because he thought she was fooling around. Like, I mean, it's, it's there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't a Danish prince, but I could relate to Hamlet. Like, I, I don't get that. Like, I, I, same no. as you, I, I don't get that representation thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think there's this uh, unspoken assumption that kind of like what you were talking about with the whole trauma thing, that all Black people have the same perspective on things. And 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 this the Chelsea Handler thing. It's the Joe Biden thing with the if you don't vote for me, you're not you ain't black thing. Uh, it, it's it's that whole line of thinking. It's like why why do you think that all people of any race or any gender think the same? I mean, of course there are going to be similarities, or you might find patterns here and there, but um, a lot of that is cultural because you know black people who are from Haiti or from uh, some place in Africa or something are different from black Americans, you know, and, and that goes for any race, you know, and, and the assumption that, you know, your perspective is intrinsic is, is forever tied to your race. To me that, that it just doesn't make any sense to me. And, and academics push this out and, and push this on, parents so much and i think that contributes to a lot of the discord that we see on this topic you know again that like you have to you know the your race is like this like you have this is very very small but it's really pernicious like i spent a lot of time reading some of this crap and me too uh, uh there is the slaves that were brought over to the united states helped in the genocide of the native americans because their slave labor helped the colonists I I have some understanding with like the you know the ADOS thinking like okay we're descendants of slaves someone who moved here from Nigeria 20 years ago if there's reparations they don't get reparations we I, I can understand some of that like it, it's a really screwed up thing but I, I but this thing of the slaves that were brought over because they were brought over as slaves and they worked for the colonialist and their labor helped the colonialist they're responsible for the genocide. And again, like I said, it's a very, very small, small, it's not a, like a out there, Yeah. but that's where this thinking leads you. That's where this divide by race, who oppressed me, who didn't. I mean, I've also heard that, you know, someone like me, like my family came over as immigrants, 
but we're participating in the colonizing effect because we're taking jobs away from indigenous and other peoples of color. You know, I think Canada's got a higher white population than the United States, but you know, the United States is somewhere between 65 and 75%, depending on how they look at what it's considered. Do you really want to make a country that is that majority white have all the other groups fight amongst themselves? If you're, if you're worried about white supremacy, wouldn't you want to get all the other groups to at least go, okay, you know, kill whitey? Like, instead of, like, fight amongst yourselves? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead, you know, they, they have this hierarchy of, like, race where, you know, it, it, well, depending on your race, your sexuality, your gender, and then, you know, they, they trickle down and the white people are at the bottom to them. So it's, uh, it's just a strange thing, especially when I was having this, uh, like, argument with someone and they were talking about, because I, I mentioned that Nigerians are doing really good in the United States. And they said, well, Nigerians didn't have to go through slavery like, uh, you know, people from the transatlantic slave. And I was like, well, actually, they started in Nigeria, largely the, the slave trade that led to America. That's one. And two, it went a, a lot longer than it did in America. Um, previous before the transatlantic slave trade and then after i think they outlawed it in only north africa in the 1930s i, I believe something like that saudi arabia so was if anything sorry saudi arabia was oh, like 64, really? 64 or 68 yeah oh wow yeah see and like so when a nigerian comes here they should have all this generational trauma too they, they should have all of this um all of this like uh all of this insecurity about, you know, being not too far removed from slavery, but they don't. And they're, they're doing better than a lot of groups. And, you know, instead of studying why groups are successful, they obsess about why groups are not successful. And uh, in Thomas Sowell's writing, he talks about that a lot, you know, instead of looking at why people are successful that they're looking at the opposite and that's the reason why they're coming to the conclusions that they're coming to instead of trying to help people out of their poverty or out of their quote-unquote oppression okay, like i worked up north um so i was working in a remote inuit community and what was done to first nations and in inuit in canada and i'm sure you know it's similar stories in the states but it was just like there was the reason i was living in they moved some of the people even further up north because Canada needed to have a flag there to, you know, because they wanted to have the radar line and like, okay, we have to claim this land before the Russians do or whatever, things like that. This was during the Cold War. And so whole communities were wiped out and because they didn't know how to live in those areas and there was starvation and things like that. So there's, there's genuine, really bad stuff that happened. And I'm not trying to whitewash it. I'm not trying to like cover it up. But living up there, I'm seeing the way people are being treated like if they if an inuit person goes to get their prescriptions like if i go to get my prescriptions from the drugstore up there i get my bottle of pills and it says take you know one pill twice a day an inuit person goes up they give them like i see it for seniors a lot but it's like seven days and it's a.m you know morning afternoon evening and they've got each dose and each little thing and it's like one per week give them out like that okay you got to take this so you know you start today and you take this one then you start they treat them like little children. And mm. I mean, that's the way I feel with a lot of this coddling and, oh, poor you, you're brown. You need this extra help. You need this leg up. You know, and I understand, okay, someone comes over as an immigrant or a refugee or whatever. My parents arrived here as immigrants. My 
they took advantage of French classes and this and that. Yeah, people need that. I have no problem with that. You need to learn the language. You need to learn the rules. You need to learn how to you know function. Like you know, if you come from India to Canada, it's a culture shock. You know, less so than from like England, let's just say. But so it, that's got to be made available. But to continuously coddle someone and to continuously teach treat them like children. You're not gonna get. You're gonna get people reliant on you. You're not gonna get people who want to grow up. I see. I saw it in Haiti. I worked in Haiti, and a lot of people were just tell us what to do. They had Haiti was a country longer than Canada, but it's only had six leaders. The rest were all uh, six presidents. The rest were all dictators. So the attitude was, call this. Like I worked in IT, and we hired local people to do some of the IT work. So when they were coming to do some of their work, they would come over. And the techs didn't even have the passwords to log into stuff. They would have to call back to their boss. Their boss would tell them the password and tell them line by line what to type in because that was the mentality there. And I'm like seeing the same thing happening. You know, I saw it up north where you give everyone the answers and you make it as easy as possible for them. Like, I don't know if you see that, like, I don't want to say the black community or whatever, but, you know, neighborhoods you've grown up in. I don't know if you've seen things like that or even on the colleges, like just coddling little kids or co- treating college students like little kids where they. Yeah, I've seen that my whole life, actually. Um, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, luckily, I had the parents that taught me young to be self-reliant and, and to work hard and to take ownership for the things I, I can control and to disregard the things I can't control. Um, you know, my dad was a military man. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I guess he's in a. He, he was in the Marines, but you know, uh, Marines, they say like once in the Marines, always in the Marines. So <laughs> me saying that he was once a military man, he'd probably be offended by that. But uh, he would always tell me, you know, take ownership, you know, take ownership over the things that you can do. There are going to be th- people who do negative things to you. You know, what you can control is what you can control, handle that however you may handle it. But, you know, once it's over, it's over. Like it's in the past, like get over it. And my mom was more so the educator, taught me to read at four, like, you know, mm-hmm. taught me to be around books all the time. Whenever I got in trouble, I would have to read something and then um, interpret what I read to them and, you know, do little writing things and things of that nature. So that's the background I came from, luckily. But my peers, there are all these different programs and all these different things that were telling them, you know, you failing is not your fault it's the fault of the system and the system and you have to work 10 times as hard as any other person especially if they're white because the system is so much against you and then all this other crazy stuff that people are taught and then in stem i see this um in, in college because they'll have all these programs for for black students and black people and now they're even hiring based on if you're black or if you're a woman and things of that nature that sometimes they'll mask it and they'll say like oh we're looking for people of underrepresented groups but sometimes they're just like no we're looking for black applicants period (laughs) you know or we're looking for black and native applicants you know preferably women and they'll put that in there Um, sorry i'll just interrupt for a second oh no no it's cool our national broadcaster in canada so it's Mm -hmm. paid for by tax dollars couple of times they put out ads and they said only non-white applicants coming out of my tax dollars yeah yeah <laughs> and, and then people don't understand that like people are like well what's the harm you know there's more representation is that but it's the fact that you're pulling from someone else's wallet 
in order to support a program that they may not support and might be against their personal interests, you know, and, and I don't understand why people aren't able to see that. And then again, it, it's, it's just, I just hate the fact that coddling today is looked at as a virtue instead of what it is, which is like a backhanded compliment to everything that you're doing, you know, and I, I've turned down so many opportunities based on the fact that they wanted me because I'm a black physicist and all this other stuff. And I've also been excommunicated from uh, certain STEM circles that are mainly like they basically they form groups based on being black and, and STEM be it black physicists or, you know, black STEM people. And they get them opportunities on different podcasts or, mm. um, work opportunities or research based on that. And I've turned down so many because I don't want to ever get opportunities because I'm black. I don't, I don't, I want to get it because I'm a good physicist, because I'm a good mathematician, because yeah. of my merits. You know what I mean? That, okay. That's the same with me. Like I don't want a job because I'm Brown. I don't want a job. I don't want a promotion because I'm Brown. I don't deserve it. Don't give it to me. And it just, you know, if exactly. you got, okay. If you got two people who are like me and a white guy who's are both equally qualified and you pick me because I'm Brown fine, I guess in that case, I'll take it. But you know, it's, yeah. you know, but I, I, I don't even want to have to think about that. Like yeah. it shouldn't be in the back of someone's head. Like, like, like you said, it's just the coddling and making you, making you feel like you, if you didn't get this, you know, if, if I didn't help you out, you're not going to get it. Like, I said this a while ago, and it's, I would prefer David Duke to be an outright racist towards me than something of this coddling, which is like, you know, I'll bring the Islam thing into it. Like a, a right-wing racist might say, why are we going to go there? Those people are screwed up. Or no, look at those people. They can't even fix their own shit. We got to go fix their shit for them because they're so, you know, camel jockeys are so backwards, they can't fix it one of these woke people it's like no 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 no. we have to go fix your stuff for you it's like because you know it's it's all screwed up we'll have to come here and show you how to fix it but not only that we're the cause of all your problems you know like we caused all your shit like at least the right-wing bigot is giving me the agency of having caused my problems and not being able to fix them but these guys are just saying i'm too stupid to have even caused my problems <laughs> yeah and then why would and, and to any other person like why would you go to them if they caused your problem or why, why should i take your help if you if you're admitting to causing the problem uh, that is you know what i mean this is so strange and then like to go on like the the hiring experiment uh thing like that i often hear here in stem circles like if, if we were to take like 50 let's say non-white applicants and then 50 uh, white applicants with the same experience, same education level, like everything. And we were to randomly pick like 13 people to, to hire for a certain position, you would naturally have a disparity in one way or the other. And then also you don't even know how they're picking out these applications. Like, are these applications coming like where the app, the white applicants are first or the black or the non-white applicants are, are second, or is it the other way around? Like, but what's often said is that with these similar, um, with similar merit or the same merit, the white applicants are being picked more because that, you know, they're white. 
and nothing else is, is thought of. And therefore, coddling is needed in order to get people into these fields. And I, I just think that that's just a horrible, horrible way to think about things. You know, like we need more people in fields that are great at what they do and, and that truly want to do it at that. We don't need people in fields because of their skin color or because of their, their gender or sexuality, which is also another weird thing that's being considered now. Like, you know, we need more LGBT people, LGBTQ people, because um, we lack representation in that. And that's the reason why they're not in these fields like STEM. And it's just like, no, like, that's not the reason. No. Yeah. But yeah. No, look, that, that's, like I said, the whole representation thing. Look, I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, people are busy. If you got any last words, you want to let people know where they can uh, get a hold of you. Um, it's been great talking to you. Go ahead. Um, basically, I, I just want people to know that, you know, science is uh, a process and it's a process of getting close to the closest act, um, the closest approximation as possible. It's not perfect. Um, it, just like the scientists that are doing it, uh, we need to argue more about the policies around the science more than the science itself. If we're going to argue science itself, we need to argue it based on the science and not based on, you know, the politics. And then two, I just hope people could uh, step away from this, knowing that there are a lot of people in and outside of academia who may or may not be black, um, brown, or whatever, and, and they have different ideas, but because of their restrictions due to their jobs, they're prevented from saying anything. And that itself is a problem. And in order to, in order to improve, I would say the atmosphere where we're able to talk about um, policy and all the other stuff, we need to be more honest with one another in terms of how we communicate and how critically we think about things. And, um, but you can find me at anywhere of Instagram or Twitter, uh, Eric's Electrons. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get on more platforms possibly. And then I'm also writing a book right now based on like my journey through <clears throat> identity politics getting to now and, and why I think it's harmful to um, everyone that identity politics claims to want to help so um, I, I don't have a date for when I would be finished with that yet, but I, I definitely am working on a book on that. And yeah, thank you for allowing me to come on this because this, this was a good conversation. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on. Thanks everyone for listening.